The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello, I'm Jack Wilson. This is the History of Literature. I've invited some friends over to the Jack Wilson studio to play some music and dance. How great is this? We have punch and eggnog. We're really going here. Oh, here comes Gar. Gar's doing a little jig. (laughs) Hello, Gar. What are you hoping to get for Christmas this year? Another blender? Why do you say another blender? If you already have if you already have one, how many blenders do you need, Gar? Are you collecting them or does one not work? I just there goes Gar jigging away. Well, we're all in the Christmas spirit here. The Jack Wilson Studio. Excited about today. Now what will Santa Claus say when he finds everybody swinging? What will Santa Claus say when he hears us sing, sing, singing? Down the chimney he will come with his great big smile. And you'll find that even the kiddies are swinging in a later style. Oh, what is Santa bringing? Oh, I wonder whether he'll be swinging everywhere in the land. All the people will be singing. Now what is Santa Claus going to say when he finds everybody swinging? Oh, laddie daddy, hey, don't you wish you were in a, don't you wish you were a musician as to sing laddie laddie, hey, I do. What will he say when he finds everyone swinging? That's a good question. He'll probably join right in. How can you not when you have some music rolling like that? Can we just stop there? Stop there with a two minute episode? No, of course not. We have plenty of other things to talk about today. There we go. We're going to be looking at the James Joyce story, The Dead, today. Oh, boy. Oh, man. This is the one for me. This takes me very deep indeed. I'll explain why. That's coming up on... Oh, excuse me. There's a someone at the door. Ah! Elizabeth Bennet, star of the novel Pride and Prejudice, here to deliver a morsel of news. Mr. Darcy and I are expecting. Oh my. Huzzah to us. However, it is a truth universally acknowledged that a young couple in possession of an infant must be in want of some sleep. Fortunately, our impoverished neighbor, Mr. Jack Wilson, has offered to babysit our beloved little one so Darcy and I can catch some Zeds. Won't you please support the cause of love, literature, and new life? We shall be eternally grateful for your good sense and your good sensibility. Lizzie Bennet, the star, the star of the novel Pride and Prejudice, back to say hello. What good news! It's really a celebration here today. Thank you, Elizabeth Bennett. Congratulations to you and Darcy, and we will definitely all try to do our part, even the impoverished neighbor, Mr. Jack Wilson. For those of you who have not yet signed up to be patrons, well, what do you have against babies? (laughs) I'm kidding, of course. I'm kidding. I really am kidding. I understand there are a lot of great causes out there, and not everyone has a happening to spare. I am truly grateful for those who have sponsored the show. I'm trying to keep things ad-free around here, and I don't know what to say. I've had not the best of years, and next year looks like it's going to be even worse. But I'm going to try to keep things going, keep things up and running, and your support makes it all possible. Those who've left comments, those who've sent in the wonderful emails, and even those who just sit quietly and listen. And those who've signed up for a small monthly donation, starting as low as a dollar a month, which comes out of a credit card or PayPal account, that all helps too. It's patreon.com slash literature. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash literature. My heartfelt thank you to everyone who has signed up thus far. And there's a shop for a limited time. We'll keep that open, historyofliterature.com slash shop. 
one listener, was inspired by her purchase. So inspired, she sent me a poem. It's called Ode to a Dying Cat, dedicated to Jack Wilson. (laughs) Yikes. Here we go. Mine cat was not feeling fine. She was vomiting all of the time. So I took her to the vet in a bad report. I did get. I went home and drank some wine, trying hard in vain to feel fine. But it didn't really help. I continued to moan and yelp. But then I checked the mail and found an envelope padded and pale. I opened it as my cat continued to gag. It held my History of Literature podcast tote bag. The bag reminded me to finish the ep on bad poetry. I laughed till I wept. So thank you, Jack, for lifting my mood. You took a sad day and made it better, dude. With sincere gratitude, Christina. Well, thank you, Christina, for making my day. That was a perfect ode to a dying cat, which makes me very sad, but also a perfect ode to the bad poetry episode. I'm glad you got some laughter out of that one and perhaps a little inspiration. (laughs) What a great thought. A little poetic inspiration coming out of a a blue tote bag with the History of Literature podcast logo and our episode on the very worst poetry of all time. I hope you enjoy carrying it around. (laughs) And by carrying it, I mean carrying the tote bag. I guess I also hope you enjoy carrying around all that horrible poetry we went through in that episode. Hey, grown-ups! the Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself, and it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, Bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. That helps to cheer things up. Can we just skip the theme song today? The mood is right. The spirit's up. We're here tonight. And that's enough. Simply having a wonderful Christmas time. There we go. That's enough. That's enough of the theme song. So, it's a Christmassy kind of day and a Christmassy kind of story today. It's James Joyce's The Dead. And I'm going, I'm not even sure exactly what we're going to do. I'm like a record. Do you remember those records? You remember vinyl and how they would get stuck and repeat? Well, my needle is caught on James Joyce's The Dead. It has been for years, but this year in particular. I bought the new version of the Dubliners, the Centennial Edition, with a beautiful blue cover and the ragged edges. It's a paperback with the feel of a hardcover book. It's a perfect book. It has great font and beautiful pages and a splendid introduction and notes. Not too many notes. I don't like too many notes cluttering up my fiction, but a few are okay. Some are irritating, but most are helpful. It's a pretty good ratio as far as notes go. And I wanted to do a different show. We just did Young James Joyce last week. James Disgusting Joyce, as his friends called him. So why are we back on this story? 
because I can't stop reading it. Can't stop thinking about it. So finally, I just decided to give in. I decided to tell you the story of the dead, my story, my history with the story. I'll talk about what I love about this story and how it hit me when it did and what I think about all that now. We'll have plenty of literature and a little bit of me, and I hope that's okay. That's, I don't think I can do this any other way, people. I'm sorry if it's not good enough. (sighs) Are you aware that I'm from the Midwest? Can you hear the Wisconsin in me as I say things like that? I'm sorry if it's not good enough. Charles Baxter, great Midwestern author, is a great line in one of his novels. I'll paraphrase it here. I'm speaking from memory. It's a man in Michigan describing one of his neighbors, and he says, he's so Midwestern. He makes balloon animals and apologizes that they're not better. Is that the line? It might be lawn sculptures. Either way, it's the apology that gets me. That really hits home. His other line also formed me, a Charles Baxter line. He said, being from the Midwest is about learning that life has limits. That's a great line. You don't always get that on the coasts, in my experience. Meeting a lot of people who've grown up on the coasts, you don't get that mentality. It's why I'm also drawn to Scandinavia and Great Britain, and for God's sake, Ireland. Dublin. Joyce's Joyce's Dublin has that shot through, that sentiment. And the Liverpool Beatles, learning that life has limits. You learn that very young out there in flyover country, back home for me. You don't get that on the coasts, I don't think. I mean, you have hardships and disappointments and frustrations. But you can also, you can grow up expecting to achieve greatness. That's allowed. That's permitted. Expecting to be successful, expecting to be happy. In the Midwest, we are happy in our own way, but not by being too successful. Don't get ahead of yourself. You also need to knock yourself down. And if you don't, people are nearby to remind you that you're not all that. There's a sadness lurking just around the corner. And I grew up feeling that, feeling that sadness, feeling the joy and feeling the sadness too, and knowing that I had limits. And I had all these role models ahead of me, all these men and women of the 70s and 80s. And I saw pictures of these people in the 30s and 40s and 50s and 60s when they had grown up My grandparents had lived through the Depression. That was on one side. Living through the American Depression, small town Wisconsin. And leaving the Europe in between two world wars, that was the other side. And they were all trying to make it here in America. Working hard, carving out a little territory for themselves, a little space, a little psychic space, a little land. Losing family members to war other tragedies, but also finding some community in those small towns, in the jobs, in the life that people had. So I come along a couple of generations in, and the rhythms and the routines are all set. They're there for me to dive into. My grandmother had a beautiful house built in the Frank Lloyd Wright style. It's a small house, but it was perfect. It was built on horizontal lines and Seemed much bigger than it was. Seemed grand to me, even though it was tiny, looking back. It had sweeping windows and wooden walls stretched all the way to the ceiling. And all the closets and cabinets were built in, so it felt very clean, very sleek. And it had a stone fireplace, a hearth, right there in the middle of the living room. And it warmed the whole house. And when you were there at night with a Christmas tree at one end of the living room and a kitchen with a Swiss grandmother, a cooking machine in the kitchen, cranking out cookies, beautiful meals. It was so, so cozy. My other set of grandparents lived in an old church, a church that had been divided into two houses, had a big heating grate that warmed the house, just a big square in the living room with a metal grid over it that got really hot. You could sit near it. And the upstairs was icy cold because that's how that was heated. The heat was supposed to just rise through the floor. You could open a vent or two, but the upstairs didn't get much heat from that heating grate. But the heating grate was super hot. When it was time for us to leave, we'd go out to the porch, which was frigid. We'd grab our coats and shoes, which were frozen. 
and we'd bring them in and lay them out on the heating grate to warm them up so they would be toasty when we put them on. It was like having a an open fire pit right there in the house, though a little safer, a little cleaner than that, but it was also very cozy. My grandparents lived five miles apart, and so I grew up with these traditions. On Christmas Eve, we would go to the old church house and open presents all day and have a meal, and then we would drive to the Swiss grandmother's house and open more presents there and spend the night. In the morning, we'd wake up and eat pancakes and play with all our new toys and read all our new books before we drive back to our real house in yet another small town and open more presents. And all this in the snowy landscape of Wisconsin, small town Wisconsin, rural Wisconsin, the highways and back roads just outside Madison, but in some ways way outside Madison because it was all farms and little towns and isolated houses, lots of trees and curves and gently sloping hills. We had nothing. I could see that now. We really were pretty broke, all things considered, but it felt to me like we were rich. Now, let's talk about literature, because somewhere along the way, I was very happy, but I was also feeling a kind of solitude, a kind of loneliness, isolation. I know what most people think. I must have had some kind of loss to send me into literature, some kind of rupture, maybe a, an abusive adult somewhere in my childhood, or a surprising death. No, I had none of that. No external source of discomfort or displeasure, nothing to complain about, no disease, no period of homelessness, no tragedy. I had friends. My parents were loving and kind. My entire family was generous and supportive. And yet I knew, somehow, that there was gloominess. There was more. I felt it, and as I grew older, the feeling took hold. It really started to grab me. That there was something wrong with the routines. There was a kind of absence, a ghostly pallor hung over our sepia-toned world. I can remember early on, my sister and I inherited a set of books, I think we got it from an auction or someone in our family had it. Maybe it was a box of books my grandmother was clearing out. My dad brought it home to see if we wanted to read them because he knew we liked to read books. He didn't himself, but he knew we read a lot. So we brought home these books. Why not read them? And one of them was a set of stories by Guy de Maupassant, whom we called Guy de Maupassant. And my sister and I had the same reaction to those stories. We thought this was the worst writer we had ever read in our lives. We laughed out loud at how terrible the stories were. We thought, he has no idea how to end a story. That was what we announced to our parents. This guy is terrible. He has no idea how to end a story. The stories just kind of trail off and nothing happens. You can't end a story like this. We thought it was just a failure of imagination or craft or something. We didn't even consider him really to be a writer. I look at it now and think of how different and unusual those stories were, that the stories we got in our daily lives were all plot-driven. They all resolved themselves with an event, with an incident, with a turn of events. The treasure is found. The couple gets married. The bully gets his comeuppance. The student wins the spelling bee. The child gets the present. Those were our stories. Those were Disney stories. The team wins. Someone learns a lesson. Disney stories and movies and Twilight Zone episodes. They're all in that classic O. Henry story style. We had a whole set of expectations for what books and stories and literature for how they should end with a bang. Not an internal introspective bang, but an external something happens bang. But to get to that bang, you need a whole project, a whole purpose to lead up to that bang. That's the story. That's how the story must work. The quest, the heroic tale, the adventure. You could be writing about a school trip. Something plain and mundane, but it would have to have the elements of a quest narrative. Why? Because the ending. The ending has a gravitational pull. Unless it's a tacked-on ending, 
If it's an ending that's earned, it pulls the rest of the story toward it. And in those Maupassant stories, you don't get that. Well, you do sometimes. Sometimes he uses the old-style ending. You get a little trick ending, a surprise ending, a whip-crack ending, sometimes called. But other times, you don't. Other times, it's much more complex, and he was showing the way for a lot of other authors to do the same. And by the time you get to Joyce, Joyce does away with them. Joyce doesn't push his characters toward a surprise ending that resolves something happily or neatly. And that makes all the difference, not just for the ending, but for the whole rest of the story. Now, if I can just try to combine this with life, marry this to life, because that's what drew me to literature in the first place, I think. I don't just mean, oh, they lived happily ever after, but that's not how life works. I don't mean that objection to the ending. That's too easy. Everyone thought that. My guess is that people have thought that from the beginning of narrative fiction. As soon as narrative began, people probably thought, well, that ending's a little too neat and cozy. It's not like real life. But that's not the same as saying that literature shouldn't provide it, or that that's not how literature should work, or that you as a reader don't want it. You can complain about Hollywood endings, but also complain when the hero doesn't win. You can do that without ever saying you think that films should have a different way of telling stories altogether. All through the dead, Joyce sets us up for a kind of story, a kind of set of events that's going to happen. We might predict drama, a dramatic event that might unfold, and then it doesn't happen. And we start to see that there's a different drama going on, and it's internal and introspective, and it's much deeper and richer and more complex than anything we might have expected had we gotten the story that we might have thought that we were going to get. And here's what gets me. Here's what got me. Here's what I understand now is why this story resonated so much with me. I'll tell you, well, I'll tell you about when I read it. A friend bought me the collection, Dubliners. I have no idea why, really. He was a good friend, but he was not himself a fan of literature, particularly. He was into medicine on his way to becoming a doctor. I was 20. I was on my way to Italy for my year abroad, and I stopped off for a trip to the East Coast to visit some college friends. My first time in New York City, first time in Boston. I was visiting people, staying with friends. And in Boston, I went to my friend's beach house, and he presented me with a copy of the Dubliners because he thought I would like it. A beautiful gift. Do people do that these days? Just buy a book for a friend, a book of poetry or short stories? Not because we're trying to send a message like, here's how smart I am. Here's how deep I am. You don't get me. <laughs> Sounds like something you might do to a a boyfriend or a girlfriend if the relationship's not going all that well. Or here's something I think would improve you. <laughs> Another misguided motive for a gift. But just the gift of, hey, I know you like literature and I like that you like literature. And although I'm not that into it that much, I want to support you because I'm your friend. So here you go. I picked this up for you. That's what this gift was. What a pure, beautiful gift. So I started reading the Dubliners on the beach near Boston, a place called Hull. It could not have been further from the setting, at least of the dead. It was hot and sunny. I had sand around me instead of snow, but it didn't matter. I raced through the stories until I got to the dead, which arrested me. It shot right through me. I saw what Joyce was doing. Or I sensed it. I couldn't see how exactly. I could just feel it. And it resonated with me. And now, finally, after all these years, I think I know why. But let's talk about the story first. I'm going to talk about the ending. Actually, you know what? Let's do this. I have plenty to talk about today. So let's do this episode in two parts. We'll do the start of the story. So this episode will be spoiler free. And you can go read the story if you want or not, if you don't want to, either way. And then the next episode, we'll pick up where we leave off today, and we'll release the second half of the podcast as a part two. And in that one, we'll assume that you've read the ending of the dead, or you don't mind having it spoiled. Like, I don't mind having things spoiled. Doesn't bother me for some reason. But if you are bothered, you can hold off on that episode until you've had a chance to read the story. And... 
in that episode, we'll dig into the ending like a couple of madmen. So here's the project. We'll talk about the story, and I'll talk about why this story in particular resonated so much with me, why it filled me with sorrow and melancholy, but also a kind of joy, kind of like this song, actually. Listen for the themes here, the notes of sadness and sorrow and hope. Have yourself a merry little Christmas Let your heart be light From now on our troubles will be out of sight Let's do this. I'm going to read three passages in this episode. And the next one, I'm going to read the first two paragraphs now, the opening, then I'll stop and talk about it. Then I'll read the next page or two when our main character, Gabriel Conroy, enters the scene. We'll talk about that, too. I'll explain who he is, why he's important to the story, and why this was so important to me. Then in the next episode, I'll summarize the middle and we'll look at the incredible ending, the famous moment on the stairway in the famous final scene in the hotel room. I'm going to make the case here, not just for this story, but for all of literature. I'm going to make my best case for why literature matters. <laughs> and it's not just for those of us in times of darkness, not just to help us get through a tough period, a period of mourning, a stint of depression, although it's certainly available for that and strongly encouraged to rely on literature when you need it as a crutch as a helper, but it can be there for you at other times too, times of happiness, times when you know you're happy, but you're also feeling something else, something missing, something something like the, the ground being uncertain under your feet. So here we go. The first two paragraphs of The Dead. Listen to how these paragraphs set the scene and set our world in motion the dead. Lily, the caretaker's daughter, was literally run off her feet. Hardly had she brought one gentleman into the little pantry behind the office on the ground floor and helped him off with his overcoat than the wheezy hall door bell clanged again and she had to scamper along the bare hallway to let in another guest. It was well for her she had not to attend to the ladies also, but Miss Kate and Miss Julia had thought of that and had converted the bathroom upstairs into a ladies' dressing room. Miss Kate and Miss Julia were there, gossiping and laughing and fussing, walking after each other to the head of the stairs, peering down over the banisters, and calling down to Lily 
to ask her who had come. It was always a great affair, the Mrs. Morkin's annual dance. Everybody who knew them came to it, members of the family, old friends of the family, the members of Julia's choir, any of Kate's pupils that were grown up enough, and even some of Mary Jane's pupils too. Never once had it fallen flat. For years and years it had gone off in splendid style as long as anyone could remember, ever since Kate and Julia, after the death of their brother Pat, had left the house in stony batter and taken Mary Jane, their only niece, to live with them in the dark, gaunt house on Usher's Island, the upper part of which they had rented from Mr. Fulham, the corn factor on the ground floor. That was a good thirty years ago if it was a day. Mary Jane, who was then a little girl in short clothes, was now the main prop of the household, for she had the organ in Haddington Road. She had been through the academy and gave a pupil's concert every year in the upper room of the ancient concert concert rooms. Many of her pupils belonged to better-class families on the Kingston and Dalkey line. Old as they were, her aunts also did their share. Julia, though she was quite gray, was still the leading soprano in Adam and Eve's, and Kate, being too feeble to go about much, gave music lessons to beginners on the old square piano in the back room. Lily, the caretaker's daughter, did housemaid's work for them. Though their life was modest, they believed in eating well. The best of everything, diamond bone sirloins, three-shilling tea, and the best bottled stout. But Lily seldom made a mistake in the orders so that she got on well with her three mistresses. They were fussy, that was all, but the only thing they would not stand was back answers. Okay, there we are. You see where we are now? We're not in Dublin. We're outside the city. We're here with Lily, the caretaker's daughter, who's our entry point, but not a major character. This is a narrator who's swooping in to set the stage in a grand, sweeping description of this house and the inhabitants of it. We hear that Lily is run off her feet. Why? This is a big night for the house. Well, it's not a big night. It's a big night for this house. It's not a presidential inauguration. It's not an ambassador's visit. This isn't the king coming to dinner, but it's a big night for these three, for Julia and Kate, the sisters, and Mary Jane, the niece. They've, they're musicians, music teachers, and they've been having this dancing party, this holiday event, for 30 years. Lily, the caretaker's daughter, helps them put it on. Can you see where I was drawn to this after I told you about my years in Wisconsin? It's, this is about tradition. It's about small-town traditions. In a sense, I had a tradition too, 18 or 20 years of heading up to my grandparents for the holidays and they had a big meal and cookies and presents under the tree. We drove there through heavy snow on icy roads. Sometimes we couldn't miss it. It was a tradition. It was the big day for that house. For the three women hosting in our story, it's a night of music and fellowship and a few potential problems. Let me read the third paragraph. Everything to this point has been setting. Now we start to see our main characters. And the plot, such as it is, starts to emerge. This continues from, Lily seldom made a mistake in the orders, so that she got on well with her three mistresses. They were fussy, that was all. But the only thing they would not stand was back answers. The third paragraph begins, of course, they had good reason to be fussy on such a night. And then it was long after ten o'clock, and yet there was no sign of Gabriel and his wife. Besides, they were dreadfully afraid that Freddie Malins might show up screwed. They would not wish for worlds that any of Mary Jane's pupils should see him under the influence, and when he was like that, it was sometimes very hard to manage him. Freddie Malins always came late, but they wondered what could be keeping Gabriel and that was what brought them every two minutes to the banisters to ask Lily had Gabriel or Freddy come. Okay, so now we're three paragraphs in, and we see some potential problems. One is Freddy, Freddy Malins, who might show up drunk, which could ruin the party, and yet they invite him every year anyway because it's a tradition and because this is a community, and that's what communities have, the good, the bad, and the ugly. 
And the other potential drama is they don't know where Gabriel is. What could be keeping him? It's not like him to be late. Is that our drama? Are we looking for our drama here? We're a whole page in. Shouldn't a short story writer give us our drama at this point? Freddie, Gabriel, a different story might revolve around those stories. The hints we're getting here. Maybe Gabriel's been in an accident. Maybe he'll show up with bad news. Maybe he'll be drunk this year, shocking everyone. But no, this isn't going for that kind of drama. The drama here is almost, it's almost all introspection. So let's meet Gabriel. We're quickly put out of our anxiety as Gabriel arrives in the very next paragraph. You might ask, well, why even have this miniature drama of him arriving late if we meet him in the very next paragraph? Why waste that space? What good does that do the narrative to set up a question like, where's Gabriel? We're waiting for Gabriel. And then answer it so quickly. Well, it tells us who Gabriel is. It tells us how he fits in this family. He's the safe one. He's the problem solver. He's the reliable nephew. He's, I saw this as I started to grow older. In fact, I felt it myself not long ago. We had a family reunion of sorts, and my oldest niece can drive now, and my oldest nephew is big and strong, young and healthy. We had to haul all this stuff out of a car and into the house. Some of it was quite heavy. My brother-in-law said that his son, my nephew, could take the heavy stuff. Leave that for him. Let him take that. And it was a reminder to me of when I moved into college, and my mom asked me if I could take the heavy stuff because she was worried about my father's back. You don't feel this when you're 8 or 10 or 12. The grown-ups are the ones who do everything, and they're strong and capable and in charge. But then you're 16 or 18 or 20, and suddenly you feel it. You feel a difference. Oh, we need to bring in firewood? I'm better at that than my grandfather. When did that happen? Oh, we need to climb a ladder for something? Well, here I am. When you're my age and the next generation is coming up, you feel it too. Right now, I can sense the relief when I show up. Oh, Jack's here. Someone who can program the television or fix the wireless or carry that heavy bag of salt down to the basement to fill the water softener. Someone who can straighten out these bills and call the cable company to find out why we're being charged twice every month. Someone to look after the bank statements. Someone to climb into the attic to get stuff or go up onto the roof to clean out the gutters. You feel that. Here I am. This is my role now. Not the role I envisioned when I was seven. But time passes. And you sense when the next generation is coming up too and you start to rely on them as well. Oh, you can drive to that. You can go buy that at the store. You can cook that. Oh, you can do that. Gabriel is playing that role for his aunts. He's here to give a speech, to carve the goose, to basically be the steady person that everyone in the house will rely on. And I recognized in Gabriel my grandfather once upon a time when he was young, and my father throughout my childhood, and now me. But even when I first read the story, I knew it was my destiny to be a Gabriel, safe, reliable, a little boring, perhaps. That's who I was raised to be. Gabriel, as we'll see, has some other thoughts, too. He writes literature reviews. He dabbles in higher thoughts, but he's not a poet. He's not Joyce exiling himself to the continent. He's the one who stayed. He's the person Joyce wasn't. The one who stayed where he was and took care of things and made himself useful and kept the traditions going. Joyce disrupted that life. He left his mother. And even when he returned on her deathbed, he couldn't bring himself to take communion even though his mother begged him to. I think we know where Gabriel would have been on that one. I'm looking ahead here. You haven't really met Gabriel yet, but let me just tell you, he's the one who would have been there. He'd have taken it because he would believe that that was something that needed to be done. He could accommodate himself if he needed to, to make a dying woman 
happy to bring her a little bit of comfort. What does that mean for the Gabriel Conroys of the world? It means you don't live in Paris, you don't become a famous author, you don't live a kind of burning life. Your fire is the flame of a candle, a steady guiding light. Joyce must have seen that this was the kind of person to be admired, to be valued, the sort of glue that holds the community together in a beautiful way. Gabriel's a beautiful person, but it's perhaps not the person that Joyce believed that he himself would be or emulate in his own life. So, let's read about Gabriel. That's what comes next in our story. There are, there are several big things that happen in this first description. Start with one of them, which is that we go into Gabriel's head. We weren't in Lily's head. We saw things through her eyes, sort of. We saw that she was busy. We saw that the ants were calling down to her because they were so concerned. That was telling us that this was a big night, a big event for this house. We saw just enough through Lily and her being run off her feet that she, we saw just enough to realize how important the night was and how much everyone was worried about Freddy and how much everyone was counting on Gabriel. But then, when Gabriel arrives, we slide right into his consciousness and we realize that he is our protagonist. We'll be seeing things along with him and feeling things that he feels. And we'll take on his concerns and his minor triumphs and ultimately all his revelations. By the way, did you notice, now that I'm talking about how we started with Lily and we switched to Gabriel, we move into Gabriel's consciousness we were never really inside Lily's consciousness, even though we sort of were. Did you notice what Joyce did with this? He starts out Lily, the caretaker's daughter. And then when he says her name later, after a couple of paragraphs, he says, Lily, the caretaker's daughter, again. Why would he repeat that? What her job was, what her role was, a mere page or two later? I think it was his effortless way, his sneaky way, his invisible way of signaling to the reader on an almost unconscious level. Yes, Lily was the first one I mentioned, but just because her name began the story, don't think that we're going to spend time with her. Don't be confused. We're not going to be in her mind. Anyway, keep your distance. You need to be ready to dive in when I want you. When I want you to dive in, we're going to dive into Gabriel's mind. Joyce is truly a master at this kind of thing. We go where he wants us to go. So, let's get to Gabriel. We see at least three big things. First, I want you to listen for these three things. First, he's careful, almost to a fault. Second, he's a decent guy who tries to do the right thing, tries to be dutiful, even when it's not exactly how he feels. You see him mustering up his energy to be polite, to be helpful, to be generous. And third, he and his wife Greta have entered into that bickering stage, affectionate, but not madly in love, where that phase where everything gets washed away by passion. Passion is there, but it's domesticated now. Instead, we get a lot of mildly irritated comments as they travel through the world together, crossing one another's paths, stepping on each other's toes, as married couples do. Listen for all those things. Oh, and listen for the snow, which is another central character for our story. Freddie Malins came late, but they wondered what could be keeping Gabriel, and that was what brought them every two minutes to the banisters, to ask Lily, had Gabriel or Freddie come? Oh, Mr. Conroy, said Lily to Gabriel when she opened the door for him. Miss Kate and Miss Julia thought you were never coming. Good night, Mrs. Conroy. I'll engage they did, said Gabriel, but they forgot that my wife here takes three mortal hours to dress herself. He stood on the mat, scraping the snow from his galoshes, while Lily led his wife to the foot of the stairs and called out, Miss Kate, here's Mrs. Conroy. Kate and Julia came toddling down the dark stairs at once. Kate and Julia came toddling down the dark stairs at once. 
both of them kissed Gabriel's wife, said she must be perished alive, and asked, was Gabriel with her? Here I am, as right as the mail, Aunt Kate. Go on up, I'll follow, called out Gabriel from the dark. He continued scraping his feet vigorously, while the three women went upstairs laughing to the ladies' dressing room. A light fringe of snow lay like a cape on the shoulders of his overcoat and like toe caps on the toes of his galoshes, and as the buttons of his overcoat slipped with a squeaking noise through the snow-stiffened frieze, a cold, fragrant air from out of doors escaped from crevices and folds. "'Is it snowing again, Mr. Conroy?' asked Lily. She had preceded him into the pantry to help him off with his overcoat. Gabriel smiled at the three syllables she had given his surname and glanced at her. She was a slim, growing girl, pale in complexion and with hay-colored hair. The gas in the pantry made her look still paler. Gabriel had known her when she was a child and used to sit on the lowest step, nursing a rag doll. Yes, Lily, he answered, and I think we're in for a night of it. He looked up at the pantry ceiling, which was shaking with the stamping and shuffling of feet on the floor above, listened for a moment to the piano, and then glanced at the girl, who was folding his overcoat carefully at the end of a shelf. "'Tell me, Lily,' he said in a friendly tone, "'do you still go to school?' "'Oh, no, sir,' she answered. "'I'm done schooling this year and more.' "'Oh, then,' said Gabriel gaily, "'I suppose we'll be going to your wedding one of these fine days with your young man, eh?' The girl glanced back at him over her shoulder and said with great bitterness, The men that is now is only all palaver and what they can get out of you. Gabriel colored as if he felt he had made a mistake and, without looking at her, kicked off his galoshes and flicked actively with his muffler at his patent leather shoes. He was a stout, tallish young man, the high color of his cheeks pushed upwards even to his forehead, where it scattered itself in a few formless patches of pale red, and on his hairless face there scintillated restlessly the polished lenses and the bright gilt rims of the glasses which screened his delicate and restless eyes. His glossy black hair was parted in the middle and brushed in a long curve behind his ears, where it curled slightly beneath the groove left by his hat. When he had flicked luster into his shoes, he stood up and pulled his waistcoat down more tightly on his plump body. Then he took a coin rapidly from his pocket. Oh, Lily, he said, thrusting it into her hands. It's Christmas time, isn't it? Just, here's a little. He walked rapidly towards the door. Oh, no, sir, cried the girl, following him. Really, sir, I wouldn't take it. Christmas time, Christmas time said Gabriel, almost trotting to the stairs and waving his hand to her in deprecation. The girl, seeing that he had gained the stairs, called out after him. Well, thank you, sir. He waited outside the drawing room door until the waltz should finish, listening to the skirts that swept against it and to the shuffling of feet. He was still discomposed by the girl's bitter and sudden retort. It had cast a gloom over him, which he tried to dispel by arranging his cuffs and the bows of his tie. Then he took from his waistcoat pocket a little paper and glanced at the headings he had made for his speech. He was undecided about the lines from Robert Browning, for he feared they would be above the heads of his hearers. Some quotation that they could recognize from Shakespeare or from the melodies would be better. The indelicate clacking of the men's heels and the shuffling of their souls reminded him that their grade of culture differed from his. He would only make himself ridiculous by quoting poetry to them, which they could not understand. They would think that he was airing his superior education. He would fa fail with them, just as he had failed with the girl in the pantry. He had taken up a wrong tone. His whole speech was a mistake, from first to last, an utter failure. Just then his aunts and his wife came out from the of the ladies' dressing room. His aunts were two small, plainly dressed old women, and Julia was an inch or two inch or so the taller. Her hair, drawn low over the tops of her ears, was gray, and gray also, with darker shadows, was her large, flaccid face. 
Though she was stout in build and stood erect, her slow eyes and parted lips gave her the appearance of a woman who did not know where she was or where she was going. Aunt Kate was more vivacious. Her face, healthier than her sister's, was all puckers and creases, like a shriveled red apple, and her hair, braided in the same old-fashioned way, had not lost its ripe nut color. They both kissed Gabriel frankly. He was their favorite nephew, the son of their dead elder sister, Ellen, who had married T.J. Conroy of the Port and Docks. Greta tells me you're not going to take a cab back to Monkston tonight, Gabriel, said Aunt Kate. No, said Gabriel, turning to his wife. We had quite enough of that last year, hadn't we? Don't you remember, Aunt Kate, what a cold Greta got out of it? Cab windows rattling all the way and the east wind blowing in after we passed Marion. Very jolly it was. Greta caught a dreadful cold. Aunt Kate frowned severely and nodded her head at every word. Quite right, Gabriel, quite right, she said. You can't be too careful. But as for Greta there, said Gabriel, she'd walk home in the snow if she were let. Mrs. Conroy laughed. Don't mind him, Aunt Kate, she said. He's really an awful bother, what with green shades for Tom's eyes at night and making him do the dumbbells and forcing Eva to eat the stirabout. The poor child, and she simply hates the sight of it. Oh, but you'll never guess what he makes me wear now. She broke out into a peal of laughter and glanced at her husband, whose admiring and happy eyes had been wandering from her dress to her face and hair. The two aunts laughed heartily, too, for Gabriel's solicitude was a standing joke with them. Galoshes, said Mrs. Conroy, that's the latest. Whenever it's wet underfoot, I must put on my galoshes. Tonight, even he wanted me to put them on, but I wouldn't. The next thing he'll buy me will be a diving suit. Let's stop there. Did you hear that? We have our man, Gabriel, who accidentally provokes Lily into an outburst about men, which makes him feel bad because he's a decent guy. He didn't mean to bring up these bad memories by asking her if they'd be coming to her wedding soon. And he feels bad about that, just like a good Midwesterner. <laughs> I'm calling him that, even though he's obviously a Dubliner. He presses a tip into her hand, trying to be decent, showing his generosity. Christmas time, Christmas time. He's got that kind of bravado, that kind of bluff nature, that cheeriness. He's worried about his speech because he's careful. He worries that he might insult his audience because he's decent. But he's also a little frustrated. One senses he's a little bit of a, an underachiever, as careful people often are. He calls out, coming, coming, Aunt Kate, to make sure his aunts feel his energetic presence, his good nature. And then he admires his wife. His eyes look at her with admiration as she's teasing him about being so cautious and making her wear galoshes. He's also slightly bickering with her because he's, he's caring and nurturing and protective. He doesn't want her to become sick. It's snowing out after all. Greta would walk home in the snow if you'd let her. That's what decent and cautious people do. They care about their loved ones. And she's mostly good-natured about it, but even so... Even so, she says he'd make me wear a diving suit the next thing after that, which I didn't read, was Gabriel laughed nervously and patted his tie reassuringly. And then he gets a little bit irritated that they keep going on about the galoshes. And he says, oh yeah, it's nothing really, but Greta thinks it's very funny. These are their roles. The caring one, Gabriel, who urges his wife to wear galoshes, and the wife, Greta, who would maybe prefer to have her feet a little less covered up, who would walk home in the snow if you'd let her. Maybe she would prefer to have her feet a little less encumbered by galoshes, a little less clunky, a little more free. It's all very subtle, very realistic, presented in a way that makes you feel like you're just watching two people arrive at a party. Just a couple arriving at a party. But as we'll see, Joyce has more in mind. All those themes I mentioned, all these character traits are going to return in part two, as is the staircase. 
as is the snow. Did you hear the arrival of the snow? What did we have? We had the scraping the snow from his galoshes. A careful man, right? First time we see the snow is in connection with those careful galoshes that everyone is teasing Gabriel about, about demanding that people wear. And then he continues scraping his feet vigorously. I think that's the first adverb we get, the first L-Y adverb we get. The first two pages, scraping his feet vigorously. Joyce, like so many excellent authors, uses verbs to carry the weight of the action. Once in a while, he drops in the perfect adverb. Here we get scraping his feet vigorously, just what a careful person would do. Right? The others go upstairs, but he takes a little more time to scrape his feet, make sure he doesn't track in the snow. And then we hear Joyce's, I would say this is the first real writerly description. A light fringe of snow lay like a cape on the shoulders of his overcoat and like toe caps on the toes of his galoshes. You can see the snow there, right? The way it just clings to his shoulders and the tips of his shoes. And then we get this, which is very precise and very beautiful. It's unexpected. It's Joyce at his finest before he tips into puns and wordplay. This is about as good as Joyce gets as far as physical description. As the buttons of his overcoat slipped with a squeaking noise through the snow-stiffened freeze, a cold, fragrant air from out of doors escaped from crevices and folds. It's so musical. It's really a, a, a just a single sentence. I'll read the whole thing again. Just listen to the music of this. A light fringe of snow lay like a cape on the shoulders of his overcoat and like toe caps on the toes of his galoshes. And, as the buttons of his overcoat slipped with a squeaking noise through the snow-stiffened freeze, a cold, fragrant air from out of doors escaped from crevices and folds. It's a marvelous passage giving us the snow. And yes, yes, the snow will come back too. And so will we. Okay, that's going to do it for this part one of this two-part episode of the History of Literature. My thanks to Christina for making me smile, and for all of you who also make me smile. We'll be back soon with part two of The Dead. Until then, please visit us on Facebook or Twitter or at historyofliterature.com. Support the show at patreon.com slash literature. And in this holiday season, please be good to one another. And find a little time for yourself in a good book or two, and your mind and your best nature. Make sure you leave room for them as well. Let's let all those angels work their magic. I'm Jack Wilson. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>